Dr. George Sweeting tells a story of an incident that happened in the 1920s when communist leader Nikolai Burkharn was sent from Moscow to Kiev to address an anti-God rally. For an hour he abused and ridiculed the Christian's faith until it seemed as if the whole structure of belief was in ruins. Then questions were invited. An Orthodox church priest rose and asked to speak. He turned, he faced the people, he gave the Easter greeting, he is risen. Instantly, the assembly rose to its feet and the reply came back loud and clear, he is risen indeed. Yes, he is. He is risen. You can respond. Very good. We've got a little bit of different service this morning, as you understand. We've built the service around our communion table. You may ask, it's Easter. Well, there's no better way that I can think of to celebrate Easter than to celebrate around the Lord's Supper, the communion service itself, as we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have several scripture readings this morning. We have several congregational songs that we'll be singing together. Uh, there's actually two parts to the message. In between, we'll have communion, and then I'll have a conclusion of the message. Uh, so it's going to be probably 12.30, 1 o'clock, something like that, <laughs> to anticipate. But I just wanted you to know this is what to expect, and as the service moves right along, and as we seek to glorify God as well as worship together, that's our intent and our goal. Let's have a word of prayer, and then I'll begin with one of the scripture readings this morning. Thank you, God, for the incredible blessings, privilege, not only to come and worship together, but the very fact that we can celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That our religion is built on a living founder. That we can not only look forward to seeing someday, but yet lives within our hearts through our salvation experience itself. We pray now that for the service, the flow of it, we pray for the timing of it, we pray for each participant, that you will not only anoint our lips, but Lord, lift our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. First scripture reading this morning, as we begin, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53, please. Isaiah 53. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, I can hardly read the scripture, but, but overcome with the incredible weight that was laid upon Christ, what he did for us. So Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 11. If you follow along as I read, please. Verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no, no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we did, or we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely, verse 4, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and the sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who would declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, yet, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. The point is that Christ exhausted God's wrath. He wore God out for you and me. Isaiah 53. Father, we pray now, as we continue on, we're thankful for that incredible gift that you provided for us. As we turn to our scripture this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the junior church is dismissed at this time. This is, this is the first part of the message. This is the longest part of the message. expect a couple adults to get up and run out after them. It looks like they're going to have so much fun. I appreciate the fact that you ever think what the alternative would be if we didn't have any children? Awesome! No, <laughs> We'd have a dying church. We're excited and thankful for our children and families. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23. This is just the introduction part. And then I'll get the main body in a minute. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. For I received that which the Lord delivered me. I want to give you two things. The historical setting and historical significance. The thing is the historical setting, the night in which he was betrayed, they were celebrating Passover. That's, this is the historical setting. And uh, the, the Passover is the oldest holy day of Israel. It was instituted before the law in Exodus chapter 12. The law wasn't given until Exodus chapter 20. Later, when, after the law was given, it was, to be, it was required to be a feast day celebrated once a year. I find that in Leviticus chapter 23. The name, of course, and, and, and most of you know this story, Passover reverts, re- relates back to when the death angel passed over. What happened was Israel had been in captivity for hundreds of years now and actually were bondage slaves to the Egyptian rule. And Moses, who had been adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter, had rebelled against Pharaoh and had ran for his life. And he had been 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, we believe that he was approximately 80 years old at this time. 
that he was confronted by a burning bush. The burning bush, of course, was the significance or the symbolic presence of God himself. And from that bush, which caught his attention because it wasn't consumed in the fire. <laughs> it, was, it was burning, but it wasn't burning up. And so Moses went to see what it was, and of course, as he approached, a voice spoke to him and said, you need to take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. And uh, from there, the... God spoke to him and said, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to free, get my people free, to let my people go. So that kind of became the theme song there of Moses' years there as he headed back to Egypt. Of course, he complained, he excused himself, I can't do this, I can't speak. And God said, okay, I'll, I'll let Aaron be your mouthpiece. What was interesting, when you get back and read through the passages there in Exodus, Moses does all the speaking. <laughs> even though he said, I can't speak. God enabled him anyway to do that. So he approached Pharaoh. Pharaoh, of course, declined to let his people go. So there's a series of plagues, of ten plagues. And at the end of each plague, Pharaoh would relent, said, okay, they can go, and then he would change his mind. Until finally he got to the tenth plague. And the tenth plague, Paul, uh, Moses came to him and said, this is what's going to happen. The death angel is going to pass over, and if you refuse to let us go, or in this case, for Israel, if they refuse to put forth the sacrifice, uh, the death angel is going to pass through their house and kill the firstborn. Or he would pass over their house, and the firstborn would live. So you have pass through or pass over. So Israel's was, their instructions were to get, this referred now to as the Paschal Lamb, but it was to be a lamb that was free from any defect or damage, broken bones, any, any, any afflictions, fleas or anything. It's to be perfect. And they were to take that lamb, they were to slay it, they were to roast it. I'm not, sorry, yes, that's correct. They were to roast it, not boil it. And they took the blood and put it over the doorpost. And so you had it above the top, across, and you had it on the sides. Of course, we looked back then, we said, man, there's the cross. And then they were to eat it, and eat it in haste. Actually, with their, it says with their loins gird, which simply means this, they took their long flowing robes, brought them up, and tucked them into their belt. And so, because as soon as the meal was done, they anticipated the fact that the Pharaoh was going to let them go, and they were, they were, they were ready, okay? It was anticipation. And, and that, there's a correlation to that even in the Lord's Supper this morning. And so the death angel then would see the blood on the doorpost would pass over that house. So this once a year celebration, this Passover feast, was what Jesus was doing with his disciples. And what a fitting time to have the Passover when we know the events to follow are going to be the betrayal, the denial, the trials, the beatings, and the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He was the Paschal Lamb. Now, the disciples didn't get it completely at that time, but he certainly introduced them and tried again to talk to them. Uh, in fact, I, I, I may bring this up later, and if I don't, I'll say it now. Jesus knew his hour had come. The, the word there is hora. It means it's a divine activity, but it also includes a divine appointment. In other words, Jesus... There's, for instance, as you read through the book of John, there's other places where he'll say, my hour has not come. In other words, my divine appointment isn't yet. 
And then when he gets closer to the crucifixion, he says, in fact, he says, I think in the passage that Pastor Phil read in Matthew 26, he says, my hour has come. My time, my divine appointment is now. And so we hear we're at the Passover. We're celebrating the Passover feast. And that's where the name comes from, found in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, the symbolism, of course, I already mentioned to you, the lamb, free from defect, the blood on the doorpost, and this time of anticipation. The purpose, uh, there's several things we could say to that. I, let me just say this, easy to remember, it was a celebration, God's deliverance from Egypt. It was Thanksgiving. We'll notice that even when in, in our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that he prayed, he gave thanks, and then he offered the elements. So it's a time of Thanksgiving for the faithfulness for his faithfulness to Israel, and also for the Passover for the Jews, it was a memorial, God's redemptive plan for Israel. Thankfulness for his faithfulness, a memorial to his redemptive plan, and a celebration that he did deliver them from Egypt. So this was a, this was a, this was a big deal, okay? This was a big day, and so it was an important day. And again, it's so fitting when you, the concept, when you understand the Passover feast, and here he's instituted the Lord's Supper, what that means then, what it means now. Jesus was in the upper room celebrating the Passover, the 12. Uh, there, there's interesting, uh, I, I want to, this is kind of a side note. There's two, two events that kind of happened during that time, not kind of, did happen during that time. And uh, these two uh, events uh, there, there's lots of things that happen, but these two specifically stand out. First of all, the disciples learned that there was a Judas in their midst. Now, Jesus did not identify Judas, but he identified that someone there was going to betray him. That's where we come, you're a Judas, or a Judas in your midst. So there's a betrayer in the midst. And uh, I, I th this is what I think. First of all, I think it was another, it was one more opportunity for Judas to repent. Did he deserve an opportunity? Absolutely not, any more than you did. But it was one more opportunity for Judas to repent. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ, your personal Savior. This is one more opportunity for you to accept Christ. So it was one more opportunity for Judas to repent. I think it showed again, and I, this is where the hora, the hour comes in, it showed again that God or that Christ was in full control. This wasn't an oops or plan B. He was in full control of what was going on. The third thing I, I, I think of this, identifying the Judas in their midst, because uh, if you go back and read the story, it provides an opportunity for the disciples themselves to examine themselves, because you'll hear this phrase, is it I? Is it I? Just like when we come to the Lord's Supper today, we're going to have an opportunity to examine ourselves in anticipation of, partici in anticipation of participating in the communion itself. So we see then in verse 23, the Lord's Supper communion was instituted by Christ even in anticipation of his death, and I love this point. It's not original with me. But even in anticipation of his death, he used this event as a teachable moment. 
And that's hopefully what we want to anticipate today. Not only do I hope that you walk away with a greater understanding from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about communion, but there's life lessons that we can draw out from it. This, this is a teachable moment, and we want to approach it that way as we look at the scriptures this morning. One last thing I wanted to point out, not only the historical setting as it applied to Israel, but the, the historical significance to the church. John chapter 1, 1. This is a familiar verse to you, I'm sure. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, he was with him, or the Word was with him. Then in verse 14, well, who is the Word? I mean, we know, okay, but if you just read that verse, you could say, who's the Word? Even though we see it's capitalized, it must be a person, right? But who is it? Then you get down to verse 14 in the same chapter. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. We refer to that as the enfleshment of God. Well, who, who, how did the Word become flesh? What's the enfleshment of God? Well, that's Christ. And then we come down, same chapter, verse 29. John the Baptist sees Christ walking by. Remember, John the Baptist was a forerunner of Christ, and he says, listen to this, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Paschal Lamb. And then to finish that all up, we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, where Paul writes, Christ... And listen to this. We're not even Jewish. Christ, who is our Passover, was sacrificed for us. See, Christ, who is our Passover, was sacrificed for us. That's the historical significance of the church. See, Christ became our Passover. See, the death angel passed over us. Why is that? Because we are in Christ because he has become our sacrifice. He has taken our place. He is our sin substitute for us. The Passover feast anticipates the cross, and communion, the Lord's Supper, celebrates the cross. You have this historical setting for the Jews, for Israel, and you have this historical significance for the church. So let's look at the passage here and glean some lessons from the text. Verse 24, looking back to his command. Notice he says, take, eat, do this. These are commands. It says, it says and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. An ordinance is a command that God has given us in Scripture. In Scripture, then, there are two ordinances that we are to practice, uh, or the church is to practice. Those two ordinances are baptism and communion. Those are to be practiced consistently by the church. They are, a, they are commanded by Christ. They are a physical act which is ceremonial in nature. And they are symbolic of a spiritual reality. 
let me just let me shove all that aside. Let me just say this. Communion and baptism have nothing to do with a work of grace. They are a demonstration that a work of grace has already taken place. For instance, baptism. Baptism is identification. When we take someone into the waters of baptism, they have already given us a testimony of their salvation experience, that they already know Christ as a personal Savior. And by their baptism, it's a symbolic act as a testimony to the congregation that's watching that they are in Christ. Therefore, they want to testify the fact of being buried, death, buried in the death, res, uh, buried under the waters in death, burial, and resurrection, buried in the old life, the old flesh, raised to the newness of life. This is a one-time experience. This doesn't have to be repeated over and over by an individual. This only needs to be done once. Then we have communion. Communion is not a work of grace either. It has nothing to do with your salvation experience. It's a demonstration of your salvation experience. Your participation in communion this morning is only a demonstration of the fact that you already know Christ. And you want to walk in obedience to his word. Whereas baptism is only to be done once, it tells us very plainly here in the text that as oft as you do this, as oft as you break this bread, as oft as you drink this, this cup, as often. It doesn't set how many times, but we do know it's to be repeated. Some churches practice it once a year, sometimes twice. Others do it once a quarter. We just happen to practice it once a month. There's no set amount of times, you should, but it can be repeated. And in preparation for that, one of the things we'll talk about is the fact that we want to make sure that we, we are right in our standing before God before we participate because it is a demonstration of my walk with God. So you have this command that is given, take, eat, do this. This is not optional. Every believer is to participate as, as best they can if they're worthy to participate. I'll explain that in a minute also. So, so what's the lesson? What's the takeaway? We are to live in obedience to, the, to his word. True? We, we have a responsibility to live in obedience to his word. Philippians 2.5 and then also verse 8. But 2.5 says, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. In other words, the point is, you and I are to have the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? It's got to be something difficult, right? It's got to be something with a long explanation. Simply, in Philippians 2.8, and he humbled himself and, it came and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We are to live in obedience to his word. What is, how can we live in obedience to his word? Humility and obedience. The combination of the two. To be humble and obey. It's just simply submitting to his, the scriptures. It's, it's a uh, release of self. It's, it's denying completely that I am anything except by the grace of God. So when we talk about the, looking back to that command, the life lesson I believe we walk away with is we are to live in obedience to the word of God. So that's a question you have to ask yourself. Are you living in obedience to the word of God? Listen, if you're saved, 
You have the Spirit of God that lives within you, and he will remind you of scriptures, scriptures that you may never have memorized, but he reminds you of scriptures that you remember, that you heard one time. He's calling your mind of that scripture because what? You need to live in obedience to it, to strive for it. It doesn't happen automatically. It's very act, you are very actively involved in living in obedience to the Word of God. So when we look back to the command, the lesson I think that we can walk away with is that, that we are to live in obedience to his word. The second thing we'll see there in verse 24 and 25, that's the looking up to the cross. He says there in verse 24, And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took up the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do this, command, in remembrance of me. The thing that, uh, when you read the scripture, you'll find words repeated. Well, generally, uh, there's, they're repeated for emphasis. So the emphasis here is what? Remember. The bread and cup, first of all, they're symbolic. The bread is the Lord's body broken for you. Was he broken for you? No, he, he didn't have any of his bones broken. But his skin was broken when they had him scourged. His bow, brow was broken when they, they forced the crown of thorns down on his head. His face was bruised and broken when they beat him and plucked his, literally plucked the beard out of his face. Physically, he was so broken when, when, they, when they placed the cross on his back to carry to the Golgotha he collapsed. Yes, he was broken. But even more important than that, he was broken because God turned his back on him when he forced all of our sin upon him. When Christ exhausted God's wrath, he was broken for us. The bread is all he was. It's all he did. He was a sinless sacrifice he was a sinless savior. The cup, of course, is representative of the Lord's blood. Was this literally the blood of Christ? And did Christ cut his wrist and have some blood rip into the cup? No, that's, that's silly. It was representative, it was symbolic of his blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Remember, Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for our sins, Hebrews 9.28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And then, of course, Christ, our Passover. So symbolic. These are, these, the bread and cup, as we take this word, they're, they're symbolic. They're just a representative. It's also a memorial, then. That emphasis, I believe, that the verse is. Three things. If you think about the memorial, that he died. How he died. And why he died. It's a memorial that he died. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, that is speaking of God, made him, speaking of Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That he died. How he died. He was sinless. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. 
who committed no sin, for what, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he, re, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That he died, how he died, sinless, and why he died, in verse 24 of that same passage. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. He, he, has, he has set us free from the penalty and the power of sin. I'll say it again. He set us free from the penalty, eternal damnation, life and hell forever, and the power of sin. It's been severed. It's that meat cleaver that has come down on that piece of meat and it's severed it, and the two pieces, they fold apart. There's a definite gap between them. He has, he has severed the power of sin over us. That he died, how he died, and why he died. A man was working in his backyard one day when his neighbor began talking to him over the fence. He said, yeah, my wife and I went to one of those seminars yesterday, you know, where they teach you ways to improve your memory and such. His neighbor commented, really? What was the name of the speaker? The man thought for a minute. He said, uh, what's the name of that flower that smells so good and has thorns? Oh, you mean the rose? Yeah, that's it. He steps back, turns over his shoulder, and he says, Hey, Rose, what was the name of the speaker we heard yesterday? <laughs> we, we have a hard time remembering, don't we, things? I heard one man say that my memory's gotten so bad, I figure that within a few years I'll be able to hide my own Easter eggs. <laughs> See, the Lord knows how short our memories are. So throughout the Bible, you'll find him reminding us of things again and again, even doing things to help us remember. Israel had their offerings and their sacrifices. Israel had the Passover feast. They had the writings of the Ten Commandments. They had tassel on their robes to remind them of those commandments. Jesus used parables. Remember the four soils? Parable of the rich man and the poor man, the good Samaritan, parable of lost coins, lost sheep. They help us remember. But in the whole Bible, there is no reminder more important or significant than the one he established the night before his crucifixion. In it, that is the Lord's Supper, our memorial meal, do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. So what's the lesson? We, we must never forget that God did for us through Christ what we could not do for ourselves. Romans 5, 8, one of my favorite verses, but God demonstrates his love for us even though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did for us what we cannot, could not do for ourselves. Never forget that. I, several those have been here several weeks ago, I mentioned Paul never got over his conversion. He never... He was excited, as excited about his conversion 25, 30 years into his ministry as he was the first day. He never got over his conversion. We must never forget that God did for us through Christ what we could not do for ourselves. 
the third one. Looking up to the cross. Looking forward to his coming. Verse 26. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Uh, just, a, just a couple notes. As oft as. Again, there's no set time. It's not, it doesn't mean it has to be so many times or three times, four times, five times. The point is, it is to be cel- celebrated. It's not the frequency to be celebrated without becoming ritualistic. We, t- we, we seek, as we participate here at Faith Bible Church, we seek to do so without becoming ritualistic. But at the same time, it's a solemn occasion, a celebration, but it's serious. Three, two key words there, I think. Uh, pro- proclamation is one of them. You're, you proclaim the Lord's death. Not just a remembrance, okay? Not just remember that he died, how he died, why he died. But it's a proclamation that he died. It's a proclamation how he died. It's a proclamation why he died. It's a testimony to the world that he died for me. It's a testimony world that I'm not ashamed of my Savior. Romans chapter 1 Verse 16, it, it is a testimony of the world that I'm growing in grace and knowledge of my Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's a testimony, it's a proclamation. The word pro- proclamation is a testimony, it's a witness. You're, you're actually participating in the Lord's Supper this morning, you're actually preaching a message. Do you realize that? Of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You proclaim. It's also a prophecy. He says, until he comes. Jesus just, Jesus didn't just die, but he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and guess what? He's coming again. It could be today. It could be before the end of the message, praise the Lord. (laughs) He's coming again. See, our participation in the Lord's Supper is not only a proclamation that he died for me, that he died for my sins, but the fact is that he's coming again. It's a prophecy. We look forward to that. So what's the lesson? We are to boldly proclaim the gospel. Yes, we come today and kind of quietly and reverently participate in the Lord's Supper, but you know what? That's in here. That's, that's in here, the church. You and I are supposed to take what we do in here, that message here, we're supposed to take it out there. We are to boldly proclaim the gospel. That's why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to everyone who believes. We are not to be ashamed of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are to proclaim it. He's coming again. Are you ready? Do you know him as your Savior? So we look forward to his coming. And we're looking within, finally there in verse 27 to 32, to his cleansing. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you. Many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. 
there's the three things I want you to see here. There's caution, there's confession, and there's consequences. Caution. He says, don't participate in an unworthy manner. Worthy is the word axios, which simply means balance the scale, fit appropriate. Unworthy is ana, ex, axios, which means unworthy. It's the negative, not worthy. Tip the scale, unfit, inappropriate. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, Walk worthy of the calling which you, which you are called. In other words, your, your talk ought to match your walk. Your walk ought to match your talk. Walk worthy. It should be appropriate. It should be fit. It should be easily identifiable that you, you're a believer. That, who, that is who you say you are. You are. Luke chapter 15, verse 21, the prodigal son, he said, when he came to the end of himself, he said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son as he went home. I'm not worthy. I've, I'm unworthy. I've tipped the scale in the wrong direction. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Unworthy. So what is unworthy? How could you participate in an unworthy manner? Well, if you're unsaved. If you've not accepted Christ as your sin substitute, you're unfit. It would be inappropriate for you to participate. That's a caution. I'm cautioning you. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. Do not participate. You're unworthy if you're unsaved. And that's nothing, that doesn't, that's nothing against you. We're, we're not putting a, a big you, red you on your chest saying, oh, unworthy, unworthy. That's not the point. This is you personally. You know whether you're saved or not. And if you're not saved, don't participate. If you are saved, we encourage you to participate. But that brings us to the second aspect of unworthy. Not only unsaved, but unconfessed sin. Do not participate if you have unconfessed sin. It could be words, it could be your behavior, it could be your thoughts, it could be your attitude, it could be failures. Do not participate with unconfessed sin. So what is worthy then? Are you saved? Are you walking in obedience to the word of God? We, we practice what we call here open communion. In other words, if you're here this morning and you know Christ is your personal Savior, and as you know and evaluate your heart that you are living in obedience to the Word of God, we encourage you to participate. So caution. There's confession. But let a man examine himself if we would judge ourselves. Examine means to prove. It's, to, it's, a, it's an acid test where you take it to the metal to see if this is pure or not. It's personal. Let a man examine himself. And it's honest. That's the acid test. You may know some things about me, I may know some things about you. But that's not the test. The test is, what does God know about you? The test is, are you walking in obedience to his word? It's personal. It's personal judgment, personal evaluation, personal examination. To judge is to recognize, to remove, or to put it another way, to repent, to renew. By responding to the holiness of the occasion, the table is a special place 
for purifying of the church. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, the Corinthians neglected to examine themselves, but they were experts examining everybody else. When the church gathers together, we must be careful not to become religious detectives who watch others but fail to confess and repent of their own sins. Caution, confession. And you know there's consequences. He's going to hold us accountable. Verse 30, for this reason many are weak and sick among you. Many sleep. Verse 31, if we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. Verse 32, we are chastened by the Lord. That means to be corrected. It's intentional. On one hand, physical weakness, sickness, emotional doubts, depression, even death can, can be the results of unconfessed sin. But on the other hand, we are not here to say, oh, you have a sickness, you have an illness, oh, you must have unconfessed sin. Oh, your dear friend, your daughter, your son, your wife, your mother, oh, they died, oh, that must be because of unconfessed sin. In John chapter 9, verse 34, healing of the blind man, the disciples asked this question, who has sinned? They immediately made the assumption that the man was blind because somebody in his family had sinned. And Jesus said, neither. Neither the man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. There are times in the natural courses of life you're going to get sick. Cancer. The, nor nor the, normal the normal process of life, people die. For us to make that assumption, oh, there must have been sin in our life, is presumptuous. In fact, it may be for the very reason that the God's grace wants to be demonstrated in their life. God's grace wants to be demonstrated in your life. God may be speaking to, to you about what do you need to change. So the consequences, yes, on one hand, it can be attributed. But the other hand, often it's for the glory of God, that he may be revealed. It's beyond any man's ability or authority to blame a specific disability, illness, death, suffering on a specific sin. It is to heighten our awareness of our sinfulness. If I was to sum this up in this, this section, the whole point is to heighten our awareness of our sinfulness that we ought to be in a constant state of examining our lives, which brings us to the lesson. We are to confess and forsake our sins. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, great, great verses. It says, He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Be holy as I am holy. It's a command. And we're to live in obedience to the command of Scripture. Be holy as I am holy. We're to be in pursuit of holiness. We're to, we're, put it this way, simply. We're to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Are, are you there yet? It's, it's a constant daily work of pursuing it. We are to confess and forsake. Not cultivate. Not continue in, but forsake. Listen, are you, are you struggling with the same sins today that you started, struggled with a year ago? You need to make some adjustments in your life to forsake that. If you've truly repented and changed in your, in your life in the direction you're going in, that's, it's going to change. You're not going to be struggling with the same thing over and over, not to the same degree at least. 
Proverbs 28, verse 13, he who covers the sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes will have, what? Mercy. See, we are to confess and forsake our sin, looking within to his cleansing. That concludes the first part of the message. The second part isn't quite as long, but these are lessons that we can learn and glean from this passage of scripture as we talk about the Lord's Supper. Let's pray as Pastor Andrew comes. Father, we thank you, God, again, as we are as we face our responsibility, as we, as we face the solemnness of the occasion, and yet the celebration of the very fact of what you've done for us, in us, and through us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The last two verses in, in uh, this chapter are often left out. And as I looked at it, I, I thought, should they be left out? And uh, the answer, of course, is no. I'm not saying that I have the answer, but I can see how it fits in the overall passage as we look at the, um, I'm sorry, there we go, as we look around to the church itself. Notice the verses. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. For if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest he come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Just keying on, on a couple, couple key words there, together and one another. The word together has to do with the idea of fellowship. We come together. We have a common bond. We have shared a common experience. Uh, I, I think of the mission trip that many went on several years ago to South Africa. Uh, often they, all they have to mention is a couple of things and immediately thoughts, reminders come to mind because of that trip, because we shared a, a common experience. We can fellowship around that experience. It also is the idea that we are partners together in possessing eternal life. So as we come together to eat, let's wait for one another, lest you come together for judgment. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son of Jesus Christ. So it has to do with fellowship. We come together. The second word there is one another. It goes right along with our one another studies that we've been involved in here at church on Wednesdays. The one another. That's family. Fellowship and family. We're family because we have a common bond in Christ. We have a common blood relationship, which of course is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look around, you see there's diversity. There's different genders. There's different appearance. There's different age. There's different abilities. There's different talents. There's different vocations. But yet we have unity. Even though there's diversity, the unity that we have, of course, is because of the blood of Christ. As we come together, when we come together to fellowship, as we enter into a family relationship, and the lesson that I believed is this. We exercise patience and care for each other. Here we are together. Wait for one another. It's easy to become impatient with each other. It's easy to become so self-focused and self-centered that it's all about me and to care for me. But rather that as we come together, 
We exercise patience and care for each other. We be looking to what is good, what is best, as opposed to what is good and best for me. As we come together, we are to live in obedience. As we come together, we are to remember. As we come together, we are to boldly proclaim the gospel. As we come together, we are to confess and forsake sins. As we come together, we are to exercise patience and care. I think, in many respects, this is a challenge as he ends here, that, you know what, we're in this together. We share this common bond, we share this common experience because of Jesus Christ. And as we enter it together, arm in arm, hand in hand, not rebelling against each other or rebelling against the scriptures, but we're in this together to live in obedience to his word. We live this together as we remember his death, burial, and resurrection. We're in this together as we boldly proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we boldly proclaim the gospel. We're in this together as we confess and forsake our sins, as we pray for one another. We're in this together. Let us exercise patience and care for one another. Father, thank you, God, that we have an opportunity at the privilege of examining this passage. And let us not forget that indeed we are in this together for your glory, your praise. Your grace has been sufficient. Oh God, I pray that we will boldly proclaim it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.